Hi, Mary. So I guess Christmas decorations are up, England actually winning in the football, and it feels like it's really the run into the Christmas and the party season. It does a little bit. Definitely feeling the Christmas vibes. I went to Christmas at Kew. I'm sure some of the listeners will have been to as well. I think it's the third year in a row that I've gone with my uni friends. It's really nice just to go at the start of December. Really gets you in the festive spirit. So it's a bit of a light show. They play Christmas music. You're walking around in the absolute freezing cold this time. But even that isn't enough to stop you feeling like you come away with a warm heart, which is really nice. Any festive stuff for you? We've got one at Hatfield House actually near us on this Saturday. I think it's more of a sort of kiddie one for aimed at Leo, obviously, because he's just over two now. So he's starting to get it a little bit. So nice. apparently that one's quite nice as well with lots of lights. I think I might give Winter Wonderland a miss this year. I've been to the big beer hall thing in previous years with friends and stuff. It can be fun, but it's a bit full on maybe. A little bit manic. I have to say, so Winchester is famous for Christmas markets. It gets on the top 10 list. I don't know if it's ever been number one, actually. It's always up there. But what that means for a local is just that it's horrible to go into town at the moment. So popping in to buy Secret Santa presents, you just have to wade through crowds of people. But hey-ho. Oh, there's tourists. eh? We'll live with it. I know. (laughs) Have you got your tree up? We're not doing a Christmas tree this year because I've got some news. I'm going to be going on a sabbatical trip, which means that we fly on the 19th of December, which means there's no point putting up a Christmas tree. Otherwise, my other half's mum would have had to take it down for us. She wasn't really up for that, so fine. But yeah, so really exciting. Going to be away for three months. Have told all my clients, so hopefully this isn't a huge surprise to anyone listening that I work closely with, but going traveling. So very much looking forward to that. Yeah, wow. So you're going to be leaving us all for, what is it, three, four months? You're back March-ish, isn't it, next year? That's right. Back late March. Give us the sketch itinerary. The sketch itinerary starts in Guatemala, travels down through pretty much all of Central America, across to Colombia, down to Patagonia, and we fly home from Buenos Aires. So any tips for any of those places, please email me before the 16th of December, because that's my last working day. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine there's quite a lot to get done before then. You're going to have a busy couple of weeks to get all that finished off. Busy couple of weeks and then teach myself how to relax. (laughs) That's the main objective. You've been learning a bit of Spanish as well, haven't you? So that'll come in handy. I have been learning Spanish. Yeah. So we had that conversation a few months ago, Dan, didn't we, about me learning Spanish, you learning French. A little bit of poco de gracias. Si, si. So that's kind of the driver for why I was learning it at that point in time. Hoping to practice. There's a few places we're going to where they probably won't speak good English. The problem when you go to Spain is they all speak English. So it's difficult to force yourself to practice your Spanish, but we should be putting ourselves out there, I think. Big news, I guess. We're all going to miss you. It's going to be weird, but We have made some plans, haven't we, for the podcast? We've got a couple of colleagues who we're going to get to do a bit of guest hosting and we're hopefully going to introduce them to you at the start of the next episode. We'll have some other co-hosts to hopefully tide us over. You're not flying solo for the three months, Dan. Dare I say you can check out those podcasts as you're on your travels if you've got some jet lag nights or whatever and see how we're getting along. Yeah, listening to podcasts, that's okay. Logging in to record them, I was less up for, so (laughs) we'll run with that. We'll talk a bit more about it in the next episode too. Should we talk about today's episode just briefly? Yes, let's do that. We are speaking to Joe Wiggins. We've spoken to him before, but this time we're speaking to him specifically in relation to a book that he released, came out in the last week or so, called The Intelligent Fund Investor. Bit of a book review, but always really nice to do them with the author. I've really got fond of asking the author questions because you can really get under the skin of it. And I just ordered a whole bunch of copies of it, which had just arrived. I liked it that much that I'm going to be handing it out to colleagues and clients and stuff as a little gift because I do just think he's unearthed something really, really good there, actually. And although it's a book that's aimed at both general people and professionals as well, there's a lot that professionals can take away from it. And I just think so little stuff is done that focuses on fund investing as distinct from investing more generally. So I think it's a great piece of work and I'm going to be going to be handing out copies of it to clients and colleagues whenever I get the chance. Fantastic. Well, that's a good sales pitch for the book, isn't it? Before we speak to Joe about it. Should we go into the episode? Let's get into it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So we've got a great conversation today about some of the 
difficulties of fund investing as distinct from general investing. And for that conversation, delighted to be joined by CIO of Fundhouse and author Joe Wiggins. Joe, welcome back. Thanks. Pleasure to be back again. Welcome back, Joe. So we've obviously had you on the show before, but I think your job titles changed since we had you on. So perhaps could you give the listeners a sense of what your role at Fundhouse involves and how you came to be an author? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm now Chief Investment Officer at Fundhouse in the UK. So we're an independent investment consultant. We carry out portfolio construction, asset allocation, manager research and some model portfolio management. And that's mainly in the wealth management space. My book, The Intelligent Fund Investor, is out on the 29th of November. Background to that is I was writing my blog for a few years and got approached by the commissioning editor of a publisher called Harriman House. And he asked me about writing a book and I love the idea of doing that. So I set to work on a draft chapter, which was looking back, very behaviourally focused and pretty dry. So I sent it into the publisher and they said, no thanks, try again. So we went through a few <laughs> bruising rounds of that. And I guess through that process, I lighted upon the fact that A, there are just not many books on fund investing, despite everyone doing it. And two, fund investing is just behaviourally so difficult to get right. There's so much choice. We typically use the wrong criteria. We're surrounded by so much noise in markets. So it's a really major decision-making problem. So I didn't necessarily set out with this idea. What I wanted to do as I went through the process was just to combine my experience in fund investing and my work in behaviour and try and put them together and create something that addressed some of the key behavioural challenges that fund investors face. I guess the other thing I was pretty conscious of when I was writing it, so I wanted to have a reasonably broad appeal, so something that you two could read as experienced investors, but also my dad, who's not an experienced investor but does have some fund investments, could also read. So I was trying to achieve some sweet spot between those two different targets. I'm just nodding vigorously because those two insights, I just think, are really quite serious insights. The fact that fund investing is sort of underappreciated as a thing, and also it's just different to normal investing. When I first saw the idea of the book, I was like, oh my God, this is such a good idea just because so little stuff focuses on fund investing as a thing. But I've come across Harriman House a few times. They seem quite good at picking up little ideas off social media and stuff like that, and the blogosphere, and turning them into books. I don't know whether you've come across them much, but they've done a good job of that, I think. Yeah, they have. I'd read a few of their books, not thinking much about who the publisher was before they approached me. So they do seem to be offering quite interesting area of the market. Just quickly, I have to say, when you introduce yourself to someone, maybe in a social situation, you say you work for Fundhouse. Do you find yourself really emphasising the D of that, just in case it doesn't sound like Funhouse or something and not might cause a bit of confusion? Or is that just in my head? This will only really mean anything to children in the 90s. But when I told my wife, she thought I was going to work with Pat Sharp on a quiz show. <laughs> 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 there we go. So yes, the emphasis of the D is very important. If it hasn't become obvious already, the centre point of today's conversation is the book, which, Joe, as you say, is out for release on the 29th of November. This episode should be aired just after that. So listeners can already get hold of it. And we will make sure there's a link to the book in the show notes. I have to say, I think this is the first time I've ever read a book pre-release. So for me, that was a very exciting concept. So we should be well informed when we go through this conversation about the book. And Joe, we usually ask our guests what the one thing is that we should be aware of that wouldn't appear on CVs, but we've obviously asked you that question before. So I suppose in the time since we last spoke, is there one thing you'd highlight that you've been up to, apart from, of course, getting this book over the line? Difficult, actually, because with a new job and the book, it's taken up a lot of my time. What have I done that's interesting? About a month ago, I did the Great North Run, which for those that don't know is a half marathon in Newcastle. So that was a rewarding and painful experience. It was always a nice distraction from day-to-day work life. Yes, absolutely. You find that helps your writing process at all? Lots of people have said that running or walking, or whatever, quite a good cognitive kind of stimulant. You find that? I find running is incredibly helpful. If you sit at your desk and try and think of something and focus on it, you almost certainly can't come up with a, a good idea or a good solution. But if I run and don't think about something, then things will tend to just pop up into my head. So the biggest challenge actually is if you think of something interesting, like halfway around a run, and you have to try and remember it and then quickly write it down when you get back and not lose it. <laughs> yeah. Certainly sympathise with that. Yeah, exactly. Especially halfway around the Great North Run. <laughs> Kicking off then on the book, I mean, you sort of answered my first question a little bit already, but I always like to ask authors, why this book and why now? What gap do you think it fills and what was the real impetus to get it out this year in 2022? As I said, it did start off really as more behaviourally orientated, but as I thought about it, as I went through the process of trying to make something that was both interesting and actually applicable for investors, so something they could use, it dawned on me how little there is about fund investing in the market. 
So either for people with a passing interest, people just starting out in the career, people who are experienced, who want different perspectives. I've read a lot of books over my investing career. I can easily count on one hand the amount of books I've read on fund investing. There's not many out there. It's quite puzzling. I don't really know why that's the case. And that allied to the fact that I think it's really, really difficult to do well and that people, myself included, get it wrong consistently. And that creates really major long-term costs in terms of the consequences of those decisions. Just made me think we need to at least make a start in more writing, more work, more focus on how to be a better fund investor. How can we make good fund investing decisions? It's a really difficult thing to get right. Joe, I'm really intrigued, and not to spend too much time on this, but the process of writing the book, at what point were you approached? How long did the writing process take? What was that first chapter that you first submitted to have reviewed? I think the process probably took a couple of years from start to me submitting the final manuscript. Part of it was because it's actually really difficult to try and find time when you've got a job and kids and a family, just finding any time to sit down and read and research and write is challenging. I started off probably on the wrong track, just I had no idea how to go about writing a book that would be engaging and helpful and based it on what I'd done in the blog, which is much easier because it's 800 words and it's short and it's sweet. And I thought increasing that and length and putting into chapters would easily make a book, but that just didn't come out in the way that I wanted or indeed the publisher editor wanted. So I think my first chapter was probably something to do with how investors think about risk and how we incorrectly consider risk and different types of risk when we're investing. I find it an interesting subject, but I probably didn't write about it in an interesting way or in particular one that was applicable, which someone could read and think, actually, how do I think about how I make my decisions? Can I do anything with this information? That's a good point because I love that chapter. I thought that was a really good insight about risk. That is the sort of insight that probably would appeal to industry practitioners more than it will to your sort of every man who's picking funds for their ISA or pension sort of thing. It's kind of a nice one to have in there because it was good for some of us, but maybe other people would have wanted to skip over a bit more quickly. Yeah, I think that's right. I tried to pitch it at a level where there would be areas of interest for people with different levels of experience and different engagement with fund investing. The behavioural themes and the limitations and the problems that we have when we're making fund investment decisions are actually pretty consistent, whether we're a professional investor or a private investor. Just because we're professionals doesn't mean we're immune to some of the, not using the word risk as in fund risk, but risk factors in decision making that you highlight so much through the book. Absolutely. Unfortunately not. Dan's already referred to the idea of there being this difference between stock investing and fund investing. I wonder if you could just perhaps through the process of writing the book and realising there was this potential gap in the market about writing about fund investing, help us and help the listeners understand what are those key differences in the way if you're going out to invest in stocks versus funds at a very high level. And we'll delve into some more details after. They are incredibly different disciplines, although they can feel the same. I think one of the nice examples of this from the behavioural side, which is something I read about quite a long time ago, is this, this idea of the disposition effect in stock investing where you cut your winners and you hold on to your losers because you don't want to admit that you've made a mistake. But actually, it tends to reverse itself for fund investors where we're happier running with our winners and much happier selling our losing fund positions. And the reason that's been postulated, which I think is true, is that in fund investing, we've got someone else to blame. So if something goes wrong in a fund that we've invested in, then we don't take personal responsibility for it. It's something that the manager or the team behind that strategy has done. So we're much more comfortable saying, we can remove this strategy because it's made losses and it's a problem with the manager, not a problem with my decision making. And I think the underlying root of that gets to something interesting in the difference between stock and fund investing. And that's that fund investing is even more about people. It's more about characters. It's more about stories and individual charisma. So even more softer factors involved in making those types of decisions so that the people element is obviously important in stock investing as well but it's much more pronounced I think because of those interactions you might have as a fund investor. The other thing that has always struck me about fund investing relative to stock investing is that people tend to think it's really easy so anyone can pick a fund after very little exposure to the industry anyone thinks they can pick out a winning fund or strategy that would generate strong long-term returns even though the odds are horribly stacked against most people in doing it well. I think it may be because people are so trained on performance and the outcome bias of thinking skillful investors will have great returns in recent years. People think it's a very easy thing to do when in fact it's an incredibly difficult decision to make. So I think the assumption is always that 
stock investing is much more difficult than fund investing is. I certainly have sympathy for that sort of viewpoint in terms of thinking about speaking to family members and friends that are not investment savvy. Somehow it feels like it's easier for people without investment knowledge to align themselves with someone who's good at investing than do that good investing themselves, except to identify someone who's really good at investing is just as difficult probably as finding a company that's going to do well. So actually, whilst the factors that you consider might be different, actually the problem is no less significant. Yeah, absolutely. And over time, if you want to include fees in fund investing, the odds of selecting a stock that outperforms the index are probably significantly greater than they are in picking a fund that outperforms its benchmark. That's not advice for people to do that, but the odds are probably against you in picking an outperforming fund after fees as well relative to a stock investment. As you say in the book, even picking passive funds is not as easy as you think, because you've got to choose which index, which region, passive UK fund, very different outcome to passive global, passive emerging markets, passive China or whatever. There's choices everywhere you look in that fund world. The active passive thing is, as with everything in in the world today, everything is polarised, binary, either or, whereas active and passive is just a spectrum across a range of different decisions. And there's no set of portfolios or allocations or funds that you can choose that is an absolutely passive decision that just doesn't exist. As we're kind of seeing this year with the performance of passive bond funds and people being kind of shocked and surprised about that, but we're always making active choices. It might just be we're investing in very low cost index tracking funds to make an active choice. In that chapter, I really, really loved the fishing analogy. I don't know if it's a quick one to explain. So the idea here was It's been long, I guess, understood in the industry that the US stock market is really efficient, meaning it's really hard to outperform it because everyone knows everything about the stocks. And you very rightly point the question, well, why is the US that much more efficient than the UK, for example? And and I really like the way you just explained it in such a simple way using the idea of going fishing. Yeah, there's always puzzled me. And I think working in the UK fund industry, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but there's always been this sense that UK active fund managers are much better than fund managers in other regions. And there's always been this stark contrast between the UK fund industry doing okay relative to the market and US active fund managers for the most part doing very poorly. And what I thought was a very spurious efficiency argument, like the UK was a frontier market and the US was the ultra developed market, which the UK may become that, but I don't think it has been <laughs> has been recently. And what's driven that to a large extent is the fact that in the UK, the largest stocks until recently have underperformed small and medium-sized companies. And in the US, the largest stocks have outperformed small and medium-sized companies. So the chances of you randomly picking stocks in the UK that outperform the market has been very high, whereas in the US, it's been incredibly difficult to do that because the returns have been concentrated in such a small number of large tech and new consumer companies. And we've seen it this year. There's lots of articles about UK active managers performing incredibly poorly. And that's just happened because the market dynamic has changed and big energy companies were outperforming domestically orientated FTSE 250 companies. There's nothing to do with managed skill. They weren't skillful last year, but they're not skillful this year. It's just the fact that there are fewer fish to catch for UK managers that are outperforming the market now than there have been in recent years. So that's definitely the underlying dynamic that will play out depending on the composition of the market and how different areas of the market perform through time. But you'll get this ever-changing narrative about which markets are more efficient or where managers have more or less skill. And generally speaking, it's just a game of odds and different market conditions. We wanted to try and go through systematically some of the key bits of the book, because I think Mary and I have both taken so many notes here. But the first bit I want to talk about quickly, you kick off, I think, on the idea of star managers, which is a great place to start. It's quite something that everyone can identify with. Everyone's read about star fund managers and you sort of talk about some of the pitfalls, but what are some of the key issues that you see there and how are you thinking about that? I think star fund managers is an incredibly dangerous area for investors to become involved with. And I think every fibre of our being wants to invest in them. They have a fantastic track record. They've probably got a huge media presence. They're probably charismatic, but there are common traits of star fund managers, which means I think we should avoid them in the vast majority of circumstances. Um, and these are, they have too many assets. So inevitably, although asset management groups are often reticent to talk about this, when your assets increase, the opportunity that you have to select companies reduces. That's inevitable. It's a fact that the companies that you may have invested in when you were running a small amount of assets are no longer viable. So above a certain very low threshold, raising assets is a negative for the incumbent investors in a fund. And star fund managers almost inevitably had a 
huge amount of assets that they're running and a very narrow opportunity set. So that means that, as we've seen in a number of high-profile cases, they start to do different things, they move into different areas, or they may just become incredibly concentrated and have their hands tied in terms of what they can and can't invest in. So that's always a problem. Performance is always strong as well in the history. They develop a star fund manager status because their performance is so strong. And that's, for me, always a warning sign. Unusually strong performance, more often than not, comes back down to earth because of high valuations, because of the fact that most managers don't annualise 10% per year ahead of the index over the long term. So again, the odds are against us in investing in these situations. And the other things I think you see as well is just incidents of hubris. Sapphire managers become so important to the companies that they work for that the controls that they have around them are limited. The ability for people to push back against things they might be doing is limited as well. So I think there's this confluence of different traits that makes me feel like there is no reason for investors to be lured into star fund managers. They're stars from what they've done in the past. That's not a prelude to good returns in the future. And I think a number of factors mean that they're more likely than not to come back down to earth fairly quickly. The one bit that really stuck out to me in that chapter is just a really simple bit of maths that you did that struck me as quite insightful, almost proving that a £10 billion UK equity fund just shouldn't exist, active fund that is, because when you looked at the amount it would have to hold of the median company in the index, it was holding something like 25% of the median company in order to get a fund that big of about 30 stocks. Obviously, rough numbers kind of thing. But I think the point was that that's just absurd. You can't really be holding 25% of lots of different companies and claim to be able to move around actively and stuff. Like you say, managers will always find a way of putting a gloss on that. But the reality is that's just not probably not a good thing for investors. There's always more capacity. So I think fund groups, asset managers just don't close funds enough. They should close funds to new assets far sooner than they do to protect incumbent investors. And there's always new capacity. All markets have gone up 8% a year, so our capacity has increased by that much. Liquidity has improved, etc., etc. So if asset managers want to protect their incumbent investors and protect the potential for outperformance through time, then they really need to take steps to close funds more quickly to new money because the impact of that through time will be pernicious, maybe not on the profitability of the asset manager, but certainly on the performance of the fund. Can I just ask a question? And you define very well in the book what you mean by staff fund manager. So it's not just every single fund that has a single final person pulling the trigger. The thing that it started making me wonder about was across the fund landscape, you've got some funds that are being managed by a team in a collaborative way. At the other extreme, you've got funds that are being managed with sort of a single lead portfolio manager. To what extent does what you've just been talking about with star fund managers, where they've got that track record and probably a larger fund size, play into your views on single decision maker versus bank of decision makers? Yes, yeah, really good question. And certainly not every single fund manager who's responsible ultimately for decisions is a star manager, but I think that an individual being entirely responsible for the decision making on a strategy is more likely to be problematic than if there's two or three people. I think as always with these things, I think there's a balance to strike here. I think an individual making a decision has all sorts of behavioural problems in terms of the lack of challenge you might have in how your decisions are made. But I think decision by committee and 10 people around the table are generally pretty horrible as well. There's probably a sweet spot somewhere where you have two or three people. And actually, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently and there's areas for further work is what size of group or team makes good decisions in what scenarios. I don't think there's enough good quality research on group decision making. I think most of the decisions we make are in groups. There's just not a lot written about how to make good group decisions. You think about the decision-making problem that is a group decision. You've got all of the individual behavioural problems that we have, plus the combination of all those individual behavioural problems and these new biases that we might have when operating as a group. And it gets even more difficult. So I think there's certainly problems of individual decision-making, but at the other end of that, there's problems in larger group decision-making as well. There's some kind of attractive middle ground there, but my heuristic is somewhere around two and three is probably more of a sweet spot. I think about that point all the time, Joe. I think you're absolutely right. When I'm thinking of my clients, our clients and their investment committees, their trustee boards, how big should they be? I always come back to, I think it was Jeff Bezos who, maybe it's sort of mythology, but instigated the two pizza rule that two pizzas had to be enough to feed any given meeting or decision-making group, which I think pretty limits it to what, I don't know, 10, 12, something like that. I mean, I think he meant as a snack rather than like a full, complete meal. <laughs> I don't know. Actually. Yeah, and how hungry are these people? We need yeah. to... <laughs> it's not the best decision-making rule for that one, I admit, but at least he was thinking about the right question. 
would love to see the results of that research if you do come to publish anything on that, Joe. Should we move on to another, I guess, key area? And you mentioned this in a few areas, but you do have a dedicated chapter about what is investment risk. I wonder if actually we just hand straight over to you here, Joe, in terms of what we commonly call risk and how that's different and how we should be thinking about it. So I think we've tended to, particularly in recent years, simplify investment risk into being volatility. That sometimes is tracking error or drawdowns, but really it comes back to volatility as being the check mark and the assessment of how risky something is. But fundamentally, if we consider what investment risk is for most people, it's one of two things, and that's either disaster or disappointment, which leads you to failing to meet your goals. So whatever your objectives are, not meeting those goals is the main risk we face. And I think you fail to meet those goals in one of two ways generally. One is slowly and one is quickly. The slowly developing risk that leads you to meet your goals, or at least increases the chances of you meeting your goals, is just the problem of negative compounding. So that's fees, it's trading costs, particularly trading costs when we're trading out of underperforming funds into outperforming funds. And we're in the cost of doing that through time. It's withdrawing too much from our funds through income requirements or perceived income requirements. So we don't earn interest upon that interest because we've taken it out of the account. So those slow bleed of underperformance that any given year is so minimal that we don't really notice it. But when we get to the end of our investment horizon, then we see it in fairly sharp contrast. So you have that slow, painful risk, which is much more hidden and probably more pernicious. And then you have the disaster risk scenario when you fail to meet your goal because of a major short-term hit. That tends to come from concentration, so concentrated investments. Other things like leverage can amplify this as well, but generally speaking, we have problems when our investments are concentrated. So we're undiversified, concentrated either, either by stock or by style or by theme. And that's when we can have quite severe losses over the short term, which is very hard to recover from. And one of the things I've thought a lot about through my fund investing career is this idea of investing in concentrated funds, which I think generally speaking is a mistake on a standalone basis. I think it's okay if you diversify and invest in a range, so you end up with a diversified portfolio. But fund concentration is, I think, problematic in two ways for me, in terms of the risks that you have to face. In one way is you have a risk of an individual stock blow up. And as well as you may know a stock, there's only so much you can know. We're living in a very uncertain world. We always do. There's a limit to our knowledge. So we always face the risk of being concentrated and being blindsided by something and not being able to recover. And the flip side, I think, which people don't really talk about is when you're in a concentrated fund, you might have, let's say, 10, 15 holdings, 20 holdings, and very significant idiosyncratic risk. You have this risk of the things you don't own. So the things you don't own doing incredibly well, so you don't blow up, but the things you don't own do incredibly well, and then they lead to that risk of not meeting your long run objective. So I think when we're considering risk, it's important to think about what are the slow bleed risks that we face and what are the short-term major risks that we face? And the two different types of risk and different to how we might just think about the variability or volatility of any given investment. That point about what you don't own, I think is brilliant because I think you're absolutely right. And in many cases, that could be the bigger risk. We never really think about it as a risk. You've got a concentrated fund. You think, what's the chance of this fund halving or losing 25%? Fine, that is a risk. But maybe the bigger risk is that you've just missed the three or four stocks, the five stocks that have massively driven the market. And that obviously has been what's happened a little bit over the last 10 years when you had that dynamic of the really biggest stocks driving it all. Funds that missed out on those just did very badly in relative terms, but also in absolute terms. You're just missing out on big periods of market return and of course, that might lead you to sack that manager before they have chance to make it back or whatever. And that then is your money lost, really. The thing I really liked about that chapter and the description you've just given is at no point did you need to say this is what the risk factor was and this is how it played out. Because I suppose to an extent, if you're failing to meet your objectives, you're failing to meet your objectives. It doesn't matter what drove you to fail. Maybe when you're forward looking and assessing a fund and working out if you want to invest in it, you do start thinking, well, is it macroeconomic risk or is it single stock risk or is it regional type risks that are most prevalent? But actually the fundamentals of risk so quickly usually get dragged into macro versus country region sector when actually that's not really the fundamental thing that matters. Yeah, that's right. It's really easy to get lost in the weeds and also have this comfort blanket over you because you know the metrics, because you know the numbers and you're comfortable with the real risks that you're facing. And oftentimes we can be quite blind to those. 
and probably particularly investment professionals who absolutely yeah. are very well versed with those numbers. <laughs> it's interesting as well, not to dwell too long on this point, but it gives an interesting framework for fund investors because when you think about active management today, you can very quickly convince yourself that to sort of get the most out of the active dollars you're paying or pounds, whatever, in fees, you want that active manager to be giving their most convicted portfolio they can. You don't want to pay someone to just water down and do the index plus or minus a few bits. And that certainly leads you towards wanting more demanding, maybe even more concentrated portfolios out of your active managers, which maybe is right. But then as the fund investor, I suppose that you're saying you've got to make sure that that doesn't then create a skewed portfolio for you. So you've got to then have that as a satellite or whatever, or have some core of just broad passive you get cheaply. Is that how you sort of see it? Yeah, I think so. And you've got to always think about how much does my portfolio reflect the level of confidence that I have, both in the underlying manager that I'm investing in and my own views on the world and my confidence that I can select the concentrated fund that will deliver to my objectives. Generally speaking, if we're investing in very concentrated funds in a high conviction way, then we're expressing an incredibly high degree of confidence, both in that manager's abilities and our own abilities, which I think is probably a dangerous thing. Yeah, but I think if you are going to invest in conviction concentrated managers, you need to blend and diversify that risk of things going wrong and us being overconfident in ourselves or that manager. Talking of being overconfident or getting yourself overconfident, I wonder if we could next talk about the stories chapter in the book, the idea that stories sell, but actually the warning signs to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite tough in a way because everyone loves stories. We operate by stories and saying that stories are a problem for investors is difficult because you can't say, well, just ignore the stories then because they're everything. In our day-to-day lives, stories are everything. Every investment decision we have is cloaked by a story. But I think what I try to do is just highlight situations where we should be concerned or worried about an investment story. I think there's a few things that we should think about when we're involved in an investment story or something that's attached to a very compelling story. I guess the obvious one is strong past performance. So if there's incredibly strong past performance from a particular theme or a particular area of the market, that's the breeding ground for the most compelling and attractive stories. The messenger or the teller of the story is also incredibly important as well. Nothing more dangerous than a lucky and charismatic fund manager telling a fantastic story about what's happened in the past and spinning a wonderful narrative or yarn so who's telling you how charismatic they are how persuasive they are is always something to be aware of as well and great stories tend to simplify things which can be incredibly effective in lots of walks of life but investment it's a problem because financial markets are incredibly messy and difficult problematic really hard to predict and stories just take all of that away and just make it seem like there's a really obvious straight path here towards this future outcome So we can make really bad decisions on the assumption that the story is telling a direct prediction or forecast of the future when it's actually much more messy and riskier than it is. I always think that that even listening to stories like that, they can fool you into the wrong context for a decision. They can actually fool you into thinking that investing is about selecting your best vision of the future and investing in that. I don't think that is investing at all because I think you can invest very successfully without having any vision for the future whatsoever. And in fact, I might argue that's the best way of investing. But you start hearing all these stories and just straight away, you're just naturally tipped into thinking, okay, I need to select this best story, test them all, select the best one and back that. But it's just not that at all, is it? No, and I think we're often answering the wrong questions. I think when you're told a story about a fund or a theme, a general reaction to that story and the investment question we ask ourselves is, is that story true, yes or no? When generally speaking, whether it's true or not is largely irrelevant to your investment outcomes. But because if we think it's true, then we tend to think that must be a good investment. And in many, many occasions, that's not the case. So I remember you probably both experienced this as well, certainly through the 2000s, when there was the rush into BRIC funds and Chinese equities to an extent as well, but definitely emerging markets over developed markets. Most investment cases then boil down to there's lots of people in China it's like, well, that's true. So this must be a good investment. (laughs) So it boils it down to a really simple question and you're judging the veracity of that story. But as we all know, lots of investment stories have been true and the returns have been terrible. This is probably a slightly overly simplistic question as well, but do you think the stories around the more boring ideas or the standard long-term ideas need to be better? Or do you think people need to be better at looking through the quick stories that sell a good idea that might not be a good idea? I definitely agree that the stories about long-term investing are boring. They don't excite people at all. And boring investments are generally the best ones. And I think when we go through periods like the ones 
we've been through in 2022 when the best messages for most advisors or clients or consultants is just continue what you're doing, trying to ignore markets. It's a long-term game. Don't worry too much about this short-term volatility. People just don't like to be told that again and again, even though it's true and it's really good advice. So any different ways to tell that story would be helpful, but we are always going to be drawn towards the next shiny object and the next compelling story, which will be about the short term, about what can make us feel better in the near term. It's just really hard to avoid that human tendency. Pivoting a little bit there, Joe, I wondered maybe we could turn to another chapter that I thought was really good from our sort of perspective as professional fund investors was that section on fund manager incentives. You sort of unearthed a few things there that I think I knew, but you put them in quite a helpful framework. So in your own words, how important are fund manager incentives to the outcomes and how do you go about thinking about that? There's a couple of angles here. One is on the asset managers generally. My broad point in this chapter is that the incentives of fund managers and asset managers are often misaligned with investors, not through malice or some deliberate ploy, but it's just how the industry has come to be structured and the fact that we're often quite short term in our thinking. Particularly listed asset managers, there's a problem where they are so trained on short-term flows and meeting short-term flow forecasts, short-term profitability forecasts for sell-side analysts and for market expectations, that it means that they engage in behaviour that is inconsistent with the long-term best interest of investors and also encourages some of our worst short-term behaviours. So if you're worried about short-term flows as an asset management executive, then you're thinking about selling your staff fund managers, selling the latest hot themes that might attract investor attention, the latest stories. You're going to sack fund managers that are underperforming because they're not attracting flows and they might be getting outflows. So you're going to be very short-term orientated in your own incentives, particularly if you're a chief executive, you're listed on the stock market, you might be there for three years, your clients are investing for 30 years. There's just no way you can be well aligned in that situation. And I think the, the behavioural patterns tend to suggest that is the case as well. That's definitely a problem. I think from the bottom up level for fund managers themselves, I really dislike performance fees in the vast majority of circumstances, which I think puts me on a limb a bit because most people think, well, they're a really good way of aligning incentives. I find them a real problem. and I think they increase the asymmetry between clients and investors and fund managers in many cases. What I particularly dislike, and I see this happen a lot, is you have a hedge fund, generally a hedge fund, that has got performance fee structure, usually against cash or their own high watermark rather than something more exacting. And they charge annual performance fees and they knock it out of the park for, let's say, three years. They're three discrete calendar years with really strong returns. They earn millions in performance fees. Then the fourth year, the bets that made those returns lose it all. There's no clawback. So the investors are left paying significant performance fees over the four-year period and they end up worse off than if they invested in a five basis point passive fund. So I think the incentives, unless you've got really good clawbacks, which are really difficult to put in an open-ended fund in particular, they just become horribly asymmetric. It feels like you're giving someone else your money to go to the casino with and if they can make a fortune out of doing well and if it goes wrong, well, you bear the loss and they don't. So I just don't think that in most cases, performance fees are a good way to align interest. I'd much prefer active fees to be significantly lower and flat than I would a greater move towards performance fees. Should we touch briefly on performance? I think we briefly mentioned the idea of chasing performance and selling at the right or the wrong time and how that's different between stocks and fund investing. But why do people still chase performance when everyone knows that it's wrong? Everyone knows that you should buy low and sell high and all that sort of stuff. There's a couple of really powerful factors here. One is outcome bias, which we just can't get away from. And this is just the power of us thinking that good results must mean skills led to those good results. We just can't shake the idea that someone is a talented investor, but they've underperformed or someone is fortunate and they've outperformed. So as much as we might say, of course, we don't chase performance. We still secretly believe that skillful investors outperform and those without talent underperform. So I think that's really difficult for us to disconnect the outcome with the process informing it. And the other thing is just the incentives of the entire system. It's really hard to recommend a manager who's been underperforming. It goes back to the adage about no one got fired owning IBM. No one gets fired buying fund managers who've got a good track record. If it goes wrong, you can say, well, their track record was good before we bought it and everyone else was invested in it as well. So it's not really our fault. If you invest in a manager with a more challenging track record and it goes on to perform poorly, then everyone will look at you and think, 
we already knew this manager was rubbish. They were terrible when you bought them and you still did it. So the incentives are horribly aligned with taking the safe option and investing with managers who've outperformed over three years, despite the evidence. I think the other thing is that, it's probably quite maybe a sad indictment of the industry generally, is that most people recommending funds, they'll probably be working somewhere for maybe three or five years and they'll move on somewhere else. So lots of times people make investment decisions and for all this conversation, I include myself in these things as well, that people are making decisions when the consequences of those decisions, which are really long-term outcomes, might never be known whilst you're still at the same place where you made that decision. So there's lots of incentives to survive in the short term by doing what everyone else is doing and what everyone else thinks is common sense. And that's investing in managers that are doing well and are skillful in inverted commas. It's a really difficult problem to shake. I mean, we see it all the time now with the assessment of value work in the UK, which has the right intentions at the heart of it. But all it's doing is forcing investors to sell underperforming managers. That's all it does. We can't move away from that type of behaviour. There's a lot of behaviour there to unpick on behalf of fund selectors themselves, which I obviously include myself, I include us in that, you include yourself in that as well. Obviously. But the behaviour that I see a little bit in myself sometimes and other people is that, especially if you, let's say, take on a client that has some underperforming funds in it, that's a tricky situation then, because it's a bit like you have the choice as, as the fund selector, do you sort of lay your credibility on the line to stick up for those underperforming managers? Or do you take what can be the slightly easier option, which is to clean the clock and put some more managers in that you like and are more happy getting behind? And that is a tricky behavioral situation, I think. I mean, it might be the right decision to get rid of them. But that's another way that performance chasing happens in practice, I think, because personnel change and they just want to clean the slate and move on. Certainly my experience, I've picked my fair share of underperforming fund managers in my life and owning them and going through it, it's incredibly difficult. So we might talk about any good manager will perform for three years or five years, it's an inevitable feature. But living through that as a professional investor day to day when you've recommended the fund and you're going to committees or whatnot every quarter and trying to justify it, that's an incredibly emotionally taxing thing to do. It's really painful, emotionally taxing, very stressful. So much easier to say, I'll get rid of it and get something else in with a better track record. It's so much easier to do. So oftentimes we just make decisions which make us feel good in the short term and relieve a lot of short term pressure, but come at a long-term costs, which is a horrible dynamic to have, but behaviourally quite inevitable. Joe, I wonder if we could pick up that point around time, because that's obviously another focus in the book is many investors have a very long time horizon. Everyone talks about that being a benefit and you've got this luxury of being a long-term investor, but very few people probably use it as effectively as they could. Could you maybe just expand on that point? I think that the longer time horizon you have, the greater advantage you have over everyone else. And it's a profound advantage, I think probably bigger than any other one because of the power of compounding over that time. But I think we all operate in a world that is increasingly myopic, unfortunately. And even if we present ourselves as having longer time horizons, realistically, we don't. Great examples of this is short-term horizons are a curse and quarterly market movements are just noise. They might be interesting. I'm not saying they're not interesting, but they don't mean anything generally in terms of our long-run investment outcomes and we can't control them or predict them. But everyone is still engaged in writing monthly and quarterly commentaries on performance on funds and on managers, which are an absolute behavioural disaster. Like the worst thing you can possibly do is just keep talking about short-term performance. Most people know they're a problem. Most people know there's a behavioural cost to doing them and they encourage bad behaviours. But everyone does them anyway. Everyone's still involved in doing these things anyway. No one can stop doing them. So even though we know the benefits of long-term investing, the system is set up so we're still engaged in all these behaviours that encourage short-termism. I tend to think about three things in terms of what is your genuine investment time horizon rather than the one you might hope to have or might have written in a prospectus. And one is about your objective, so what you're actually investing for. So a lot of people, that might be 30 years down the line, five years, 10 years, 20 years. So what are your actual objectives? Then it's your observation period. How often are you looking that probably matters more than your objectives. So you might have a 20-year horizon. If you're checking your portfolio every day, your horizon is much, much shorter than you think it is. The final one is, what do you care about? Where are the pressure points on performance? So again, you might have a 20-year objective, but if you've got a one-year time horizon before you're up in front of a committee and your manager might get sacked, or if a manager's on the spotlight and you're worried about next quarter, then your time horizon shrink quite dramatically. So you have time horizons that are Nothing more than noise in terms of meaningful investment periods, but everyone's involved in making decisions based on those. It's really, really difficult, and I'm not sure 
how to solve the problem of time horizons being incredibly short. But I would say that any investment firm that wants to have a genuine and obvious edge over other investment firms is to create a structure where you can have a long time horizon. Easier said than done, but that is a major advantage if people are able to take it. I think a lot of it comes down to something you mentioned before when we spoke, which is about the investing environment. And I'm thinking here as much from the asset owner perspective as the actual fund manager here, but just simple things like page one of the quarterly report, what does it say? And I think that there's a bad version of that, which is what the Fed did four months ago. Another bad version of that might be, this is what performance was last month. An even worse version might be, we're a 200-year-old firm with offices around the world kind of thing. You see that all the time on the first page of performance reports, and we're all laughing, but I mean, we see that. A better version of it, I suppose, might be, here's our five-year performance, or maybe it is, here's what you've asked us to do, and this is what philosophically we're trying to achieve with it. I'm not sure, but I'm agreeing. I think so often asset owners say, oh, yeah, we're long-term, we're long-term, and then don't do anything about it or don't even know what to do with it. Maybe the environment is one starting point. I think that's right, and I think that, it would be good for more firms, and this is consultants, asset owners, fund managers, to push back against providing short-term information. If they're required to do it, then fair enough. But they should say, we do not think it's in your interest to publish this data in this way on a regular basis. We want to focus your attention on these things. And I think the danger is that people think, oh, you've got carte blanche to do whatever you like without any oversight. But there's a very big difference between overseeing something and ensuring that it's within the range of reasonable expectations than worrying about whether it's outperformed over the last quarter so they're very different things but you're absolutely right there needs lots more needs to be done on creating the right environment the right decision making context for investors i wonder if we continue on that sort of vein and joe you effectively just gave us a bit of a tip in terms of how to think about this and how to protect against that time issue just a bit more broadly our audience includes consultants who recommend funds like us managers who run them of course and many people who will actually buy the funds so trustees of pension schemes and that sort of thing do you have any distinct tips or messages for those three different groups of people either through writing the book or just generally over your career so far that you could come up with one thing that's really been at the forefront of my mind recently i've chatted down about this a bit recently as well is about investment beliefs so I think for every investor, having a clear set of meaningful investment beliefs is absolutely critical. So not meaningless flannel, but what you actually believe about investing and about the decisions you're going to make. It's so important in not just framing expectations for other people, but in assessing your own decisions and making sure that they're consistent with what you believe about investing. And I think most investment beliefs or principles that you see set out are generally meaningless, don't tell you anything. But they should be, if investment beliefs work, then they should be useful to you as an investor in helping you frame what you think and also communicating it to other people about what decisions you might make in the future. That's really important. I think if you're investing in active funds, everyone doing that needs to be clear about the realities of it. If you can't cope with the behavioural challenge of it, if you can't cope with the years of underperformance, then don't do it. That You don't have to do it. No one's forcing anyone to invest in active funds, in pure active funds rather than index tracking. And there are cheaper options that can take all that stress away. So the worst thing to be is an active investor who's not behaviourally disposed to doing it because you'll just continually make poor decisions. It's a tough thing to do well. So you need to go in with your eyes open about that. I think for passive investors, my advice would say investors in index funds, you need to be aware of the realities or the potential costs of investing in index funds. So this year, because we've seen bond yields rise quite significantly and equity markets fall in 2022, there's been lots of questions about the flagship passive multi-asset funds with people surprised about the performance of the cautious variants of those funds, which have got passive fixed income holdings, quite a long duration in there. But there shouldn't be any surprise with that because that's just the nature of a passive bond fund investment, for example, that you'll follow the composition of that market and the duration of that market, which had extended for a period of time. And you had low yields as well. So with every investment approach you take, you need to understand what the costs are. So passive funds has to accept the realities of that type of issue in bond markets we've seen this year or investing in Japan at 100 times earnings in the early 90s because over the time you think that a passive fund option will win out. But you've got to accept with whatever investment approach you take, there are downsides and limitations. The worst thing we can do is that every time one of those limitations comes to pass, you flip to something else and try something different. So just be aware of the costs and advantages of the style of investment you're undertaking and be able to accept that through time. Excellent. Thank you. It's so true. I mean, we've seen this recently, haven't we? There's so much of the driver of active and passive fund performance is just the environment and the style factors 
that are predominant over a certain period of time, not necessarily skill or talent, investing talent. It's just being a growth investor when the growth was doing well or a value investor when value was doing really well actually does explain a lot of it. Absolutely. Great. Okay. As we start to wind up a little bit, Joe, what's one thing you would like listeners to take away from this episode other than buy the book, which of course listeners should definitely go and do? <laughs> the key thing for me is just appreciate how difficult fund investing is. It's a major decision-making problem. That's not just identifying skill or the right asset classes at the right time. It's just the behavioral aspects of a massive challenge as well. Huge amount of choice, lots of noise, so many options. It's a really difficult thing to do well, whether you're investing in index funds or high conviction active funds. You need to be aware of those challenges and think about them quite carefully if you want to come out of it on the right side. And Joe, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing, apart from fund investing being hard? I can't remember what I said last time, so this might be the same thing, but that's fine. So I think I would say private investors have a major behavioural advantage over professional investors. So when we think about time horizons and how do you invest for the long term, the easiest way is to be a private investor when you don't have any responsibilities about reporting over the next month or the next quarter. You can make some sensible investment decisions. You don't need to check markets every day. So you can make sensible decisions, stick with them, close your eyes and benefit from that over the long term. So the behavioural challenges can be much more acute for professional investors and they can be for private investors. We could do a whole podcast on that, couldn't we? Maybe we should. It is such a subtle point that the decisions you make when you have to justify them to a committee or the decisions you make when you have to vote for them in front of other people can just influence you in weird ways. The only other point to add to that, which you made last time as well, was the frictional point. It's something to be aware of, obviously, and that the one benefit of having lots of committees and lots of processes might be clunky is that they stop you from making quick decisions on a Tuesday morning that might be very damaging to your overall wealth, whereas private investors do tend to have that as a risk that's lurking there for them, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Any good books or podcasts you can recommend? <laughs> I'm going to go off-piste on a book recommendation. So a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, who is a psychiatrist. And the book is about the effects of psychological trauma, which sounds like a, a heavy read, which to an extent it is, but it's also a really enlightening one. And the the book is about how our behaviour and our feelings and our life are so shaped by the traumatic experiences that we have in our life. And they might be major or minor traumas that affect us. And they're incredibly important to understand, even if you don't feel like you've been through major traumatic experiences, it's an incredibly rewarding read. And I think we're all impacted by trauma, whether it's us or our families or friends, even in wider society when we see people struggling with addiction or when we see people who are homeless, often it's a consequence of trauma that they've experienced at some point in their life. It's one of those books where you start reading it and you realise that the person writing it is the preeminent expert in the field. And it's just incredibly engaging, fascinating, at times upsetting, but a brilliant book to read about an incredibly important subject for all of us. So it's well outside of the finance area, but I'd recommend it for a different type of book. I'm going to get that on my list straight away because that sounds absolutely brilliant. But before we finish, of course, I would definitely recommend listeners get a hold of a copy of Joe's book. I listen to a lot of podcasts with authors where they end up talking through the entire book, but I can promise people we definitely haven't done that today. That We had a whole list of other questions we haven't even got to. So a lot of other chapters there obviously linked to your book in the show notes. But Joe, it's been a great conversation as ever. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.